We're the Nada Grande Boys. I'm Rodney Wood. And I'm Kyle Jackson. Welcome to the Nada Grande Outdoors podcast where we hunt it forward. Welcome to the Nada Grande Outdoors podcast. We have a very special guest today. It'll be uh, Colonel Griego, Bobby Griego of the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. He is the head of the Field Operations Division. Correct. Welcome today. We really appreciate you coming in. Glad to be here. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, how, how you got to be where you are, your background, uh, how you grew up, all that stuff, because I'm sure it plays into where you are and, and, and what you're doing in the department. Sure. Um, I grew up in Capitan, New Mexico, small community, um, rural community, ranching community. Um, grew up there hunting, fishing, trapping, um, and then went to school at New Mexico State in Las Cruces and got hired on with the game department in 1997. So uh, I trained up in Farmington under a guy named Bob Culp, which kind of set the trajectory for for my career um, as far as law enforcement goes. So what, I'm, I, I'm, I'm gonna back up and, and kinda ask a few questions here if you don't mind. Sure. What, I guess this is one of the main questions I think most game wardens probably get asked. Crap! <laughs> Sorry about that guys, that's my phone. Should put it, put it on silent. <laughs> you know us, we're not real prepared. But, yeah, we're bound to you know, screw you something up. Uh, Do you want to? No, it's okay. No, just keep going. Anyway, you don't want to look too professional. Well, no, we're definitely not that. I'm not sure we can look too professional. So, uh, what made? I think the question that a lot of game wardens probably get asked is, what made you want to be a game warden? Right. You know, um, in my family, hunting, fishing, and trapping was a pretty significant part of of everything we did, um, and. You know, I grew up in an era when, you know, the opening day of the first rifle deer season, they gave you the Monday or the Friday off of school um, because so many kids were going to be gone anyway. So they just, they just. I wish just, that was still the case. Yeah, right? no, no doubt. Um, so I always had a knack for hunting. Even as a kid before I was hunting deer, you know, I was out there with my pellet gun or BB gun um, shooting birds or whatever else would let me near them. Um, but probably as a teenager, late teenager, I kind of had a, um, I guess you'd say the, the rules meant something to me, even, even at that early age. Not that I didn't, uh, do some shady things every now and again as a teenager, <laughs> but, uh, hunting rules and ethics, um, there was something about that that just really struck me and, and, and I knew I wanted to be a game warden pretty early, probably by 16. Very good, very good. Um, yeah, I, I think I've heard it said that the, the best game wardens are the ones that have done some shady stuff. Sure, they know how to catch sure. the bad guys, yeah. right? So, I, I won't throw any of my accomplices <laughs> under the bus, but uh, but yeah, we had we had some we had some good times, but uh, you know, never ever. Um, did anything that was was wanton or wasteful um but but yeah we were kids no doubt <laughs> right very good very good so uh you started training 
Uh, what year was that? In uh, I got hired in 1997. Um, went through the recruit school in the academy. So uh, I was up in Farmington in 1998 under Bob Culp. You were you were training under under Bob the year that I started college. Really? Yeah. yeah. So that's cool. Um, and so take us from there, kind of, kind of. Well, for anybody out there who's who's maybe interested in being a game warden, take take us through that process. Like, uh, you know, what did what do they need to do, and then we'll come back to kind of your progression okay. through the through through game of fish sure. and how you got to where you are. You know, any any guy or gal out there that wants to be um, a wildlife law enforcement officer, you know, with New Mexico. Um, it used to be that we required a wildlife degree or biology degree, range science. Um, now we've expanded that to uh, criminal justice and some other degrees. Really, uh, I believe that the wildlife range is is still a significant part of it, but um, the key is a, a true love of hunting, fishing, or trapping, or all the above. Um, it takes a little more than just liking the outdoors. You've got to have a passion for um, for the resource and wanting to protect it um, because today's society to be in law enforcement is not the greatest time to be in law enforcement uh, across the nation um, getting scrutinized pretty hard and law enforcement has always been scrutinized but it seems like the public support has gone away in some instances um, in some areas it's as strong as it ever was but um, when people see it across uh, the news nationally, it makes a young guy or gal think twice about, do I want to put myself through something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, having that strong base of, of the outdoors and, and, and wildlife, um, I think there's been instances where we've had some individuals who they didn't hunt fish or trap, and but they had a significant... Uh, love of the resource and if they're willing to put the work in you know I think a guy can can catch up get behind the curve or get ahead of the curve um, eventually but it takes significant effort um, but uh, so what is so and I think we have an idea because we are you know hunters fishers right. trappers we, we have that passion we know you know we know that uh, those people are oftentimes the best conservationists, the ones who are doing the most for the resource. Um, but we also, you know, our attempt with this podcast is to reach people who, who are not part of this hunting community and trying to get them to come into this hunting mm-hmm. community. Explain why someone who um, hunts, fishes, or traps is is a good fit for that, and and why they tend to kind of, I guess probably excel or, or um, do better in that mm-hmm. position versus like a let's say a biologist or something sure you know I, I think it's it's first off a, a love and respect for the activity of, of hunting fishing and trapping um, but more so as a conservation officer or game warden it, it can boil down as simple to if you've if you've been a hunter or trapper, and on this particular day you're waking up to patrol and the wind is blowing, well, a guy that's been a hunter 
knows that if most of those hunters are going to be down in the canyons where where that wildlife is during that type of mm-hmm. of, of storm or and rather than wasting their time out on the flats um, just simple things like that or it's raining or it's evening or certain times a year during the rut um, a hunter is going to know where the wildlife is and in turn where where our hunters are going to be to make those contacts um, same thing with um, certain times of the year where spotlighting might be more prevalent than others because knowing the wildlife and, and knowing where, where they will be um, will sure save a guy a lot of miles of, of just wasting their time versus mm-hmm. being effective. So Good. Um, so take us through, I guess, your, your experiences as a game warden and, and how it led you to where you're at. Sure. You know, I was uh, a game warden that I probably, or with, without a doubt, I've, I've always um, focused a little more on my law enforcement effort. Um, you know, game wardens or conservation officers, we, we talk about the conservation officer concept, and um, that's essential, it's important, but that entails, you know, your law enforcement effort, your public affairs, your wildlife management, all of that put together um, and even though I enjoy paying attention to the habitat and the wildlife uh, management aspect of it um, I had a tendency to really uh, I enjoyed the law enforcement aspect of it and and that's where I put um, probably more effort um, I would get a little frustrated as a younger officer when I'd looked at some habitat and would start working with the other agencies, the federal agencies, and the bureaucracy behind that would frustrate me. Um, if I looked at some country and thought, you know, we need to really thin this country out and, and uh, pinyon juniper encroachment, and everyone agreed, and they said, well, after we do NEPA and all of that, <laughs> you know, we'll get to it in about eight years. Um, it's a long process. Yeah. yeah, it tends to be a long process. Uh, so that, that tended to frustrate me, and although I did it, um, I didn't focus as much on that because of the bureaucracy mm-hmm. end of that, um, and I focused more on, on my law enforcement effort um, and, my, and my public affairs or public relations. Um, as a game warden, it's essential that you get to know your community and you, and you make contacts with um, all the community but especially those individuals that live out out of town, you know th- those ranchers that are out there. You've got to have a good relationship with them because they're on the ground as much or more than we are. They're going to see things, and if you don't have a relationship, they're not going to take the time out of their day to make the call to let you know. Well, and to that point, you have how many how many officers statewide? We have about seventy-five to eighty officers on the ground out in the field, and. Uh, give us a, co- a, a comparison for, for somebody who, who doesn't realize, you know, the numbers versus the scope of the landscape in New Mexico. Kind of give right. us an, an idea of that's a, an officer per how many square miles. It's pretty significant. Our, our average district, um, a district being the, the uh, geographical area that each officer is responsible for, is uh, around 2,000 square miles, um, so pretty which significant. Is, which is, yeah, 
very significant because you look at some of those states back east that are real, you know, small states uh, like Rhode Island, you know, New Hampshire. They 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 oftentimes have two game wardens to a county, and a county is not even as big as some of the districts here in Mexico. Yeah, you know, I I spent uh, my first district was uh, the reserve district there in Catron County, and I was there for eight years, and amazingly I went back a few times to go help with hunts and even after being there eight years I still found roads that I'd never been completely through Um, so yeah you're just not going to cover it all and and being effective um, is is it's pretty difficult when you've got that much country well and and like you were talking about that's one of the things that that another thing that we really advocate for is we've lost a lot of the public hunter and the private landowner uh, seems like there's a. Rodney keeps <laughs> telling me, just speak up, Rodney. Would give me the eye. I, uh, sorry about that. I tend to slam my fist on the. Uh, on the thumping you keep hearing. Yeah, the thumping you keep hearing yeah, hand me. Um, I'll try and minimize that. Uh, there seems to be a. a a divide and, it, and it's in in my mind or in my experience it has grown I think over the past uh, you know 10 15 years or more between private landowners and the public hunters whereas I remember when I when I were I was a kid even though I didn't do as much hunting as I do now uh, it would seem like it was a lot easier to get on to some of these places to go hunt sure. um, and the relationship you're talking about between the, the officers and the community and and the landowners is also pretty key in that I would think without a doubt you know again back to growing up I can remember um, deer hunting or elk hunting and we were going to hunt on what my dad used to call a school section um, which is state land Mm -hmm. and uh, we would always call the the landowner or the leasee to say hey we're going to be hunting the state land and at the time, I didn't think twice about it um, till later on as an adult thinking, you know, even back then we had, or my dad, had the respect for, for that rancher, um, that leasee, to give him, hey, just a heads up. Even though it may not be public land, but it's, it's dang sure not private, and we had uh, every right to be on there hunting, mm-hmm. um, still giving them the heads up, hey, we're going to be out here. Um, and to, so to this day, there's times I'll go coyote hunting and, and call the rancher, hey, heads up, I'm going to be out there doing some calling and, uh, because of that. And, and that's important um, to build those relationships. You know, over time, if you just go out and look on any private land or lease land and see the amount of bullet holes in, in uh, windmill fins or, or, or signs, um, that plays an, that has an impact on whether landowners are going to let you on their property and it may not be you it might have been an occurrence that happened 20 years ago mm-hmm. and that was enough that turned that landowner off that you know it's just not worth it to have a public hunter on there yeah, yeah. And we've we've talked about that a lot here on this podcast is the relationship between public landowners and and private landowners yeah. um, and and there is a divide and there is a fight going on between between the two ta- factions for those exact reasons. Um, you know, I remember same thing as a young man. We used to quail hunt out there 
um, in Three Rivers. Mm -hmm. And um, we did the same thing. We would always call them and tell them, hey, we're coming out and we're going to go quail hunting. It was all BLM and state. And they had the leases. And, yeah, we had the legal right to be there, but we also had the respect to call them and say, hey, we're going to be out there. Um, and they had windmill tanks out there on that state land. And they, we, when we'd drive by, we would look, and there would be dove and quail feathers and carcasses in the tanks. Right. And it's no wonder that these landowners don't want public hunters out there. Well, it's not, a, it's not just, you know, it's not just now, or not just then, it, it's now. We went out uh, back in, in the fall uh, to take Adrian and Emily uh, shooting to, to the range to get ready for their hunts and went out uh, west of Albuquerque out there to some BLM land. They had, you know, they had, the BLM had put up some really nice kiosks and things like that with uh, mm -hmm. maps of the area and, and bullet holes all through yeah. it. And, yeah. And we, we as public landowners don't do a good job of respecting, you know, we, 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 we always uh, exert the, the, idea that we are public landowners we have a right to be there but you know we also have, we also have a responsibility to take care of that property and it's especially the you know if, if we're gonna try and build those relationships with private landowners you've got to have that respect because that's their livelihood sure but i think it's important to to recognize also that you know the vast majority of our sportsmen are, are pretty honest ethical individuals that would never do something like that oh, it, it's yes. a few yes. bad apples yeah. that ruin it for everybody yeah. yes um and and that's with a lot of things in life sure not just um, hunting but and you know probably even more so than a bullet hole through a windmill thin which you know one or two is having zero impact it's i think more so what landowners get frustrated and anyone that's been in the ag industry that's had to gather a pasture gates left over <laughs> and over again because someone didn't close a gate. Uh, um, I, I will throw my hand up because I've had to do that. If yeah. it's open, leave it open. If, if it's, it's closed, shut, leave yeah, it exactly. shut. And, and I think that's what happens more often than, than criminal damage. Mm -hmm. It's just someone doesn't understand the significance of closing a gate. Well, it's just a gate to them. It's just something that they got to go through, and it, and and it's so much easier just to leave it open because oh, I may come back out this right. way. They don't understand the workings of yeah, I got cattle in this right. in this pasture, and I need to keep them separate from this pasture because they got bulls in this pasture. Yeah. They just don't understand yeah. that. Or no, anyone that's gathered yearlings in a cedar covered pasture <laughs> and understands <laughs> the effort that goes into getting those knot heads going in one direction, much less having to redo that three or four times you miss cattle or yeah. whatever else yeah. um, that, that can get pretty frustrating on, on anybody and and I think that's going to be that's an important aspect of I think as uh, you know the game department in conjunction with with the ag industry educating our, our sportsmen and, and people in general hikers, dog walkers, whatever the case may be the importance of a simple that those of us that grew up in rural America, you learn that by five years old. Mm -hmm. Close the gate. Mm -hmm. I don't care how fast you're going to be coming back through it. Close it. Mm -hmm. um, and something simple like that could pay dividends for
for 20 years into the future. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Went on a little little bit of a rabbit, rabbit chase there. Uh, back to kind of kind of your career as as a game warden. Um, how did you get to where you're at? What what led you to say uh, I'm I'm gonna because you were in Magdalena for quite a while. Yep. Right? Yep. Again, I think it goes back to again my my focus, my training officer. Um, you know, I give him a lot of credit. He was a, a dang good game warden. Um, really, he focused on on the law enforcement. He was good at it, and in turn that that helped me. Um, even though he was well rounded and he did a lot of of habitat and wildlife work, um, that love of the law enforcement side of it really set the trajectory for my career because as I got to reserve um, back in those days we only had four training officers in the whole state so those four guys um, trained all the new recruits and uh, when I had about three years on um, I was making a pretty good name for myself uh, uh, there in reserve making some pretty good cases um, Fortunate or unfortunate, I guess uh, the officer that was there before me was was uh, did not have or did not seem to have the same passion. So um, those first two years, I looked real good because cases were just falling out of the sky. So it, it, the 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 bad guys there had no fear of the game department. Um, so some of it was easier than than others, um, but because of that. I was making a pretty good name for myself and I applied. One of those uh, field training officer jobs came open and uh, I was fortunate enough to to get it um, even with three or four years on at the time. And uh, back to that training officer, he was also teaching our chapter 17 which is our law portion to our recruits in our recruit school. So he brought me in on that to help him teach that. So between those two things, I was able to become a training officer and, and start working with recruits, which uh, helps an officer out a lot because new officers, recruit officers, will ask the craziest questions. They make you think. Um, and just like any child, they will ask you why. Okay, you said that, but why? What's the reason we're doing this? And it makes, it makes you better. So I got to be a training officer, um, did that, and then I uh, promoted to sergeant um, with about eight years. In those days, again, too, um, you just weren't going to become a sergeant until you had about 10 years on. It just it didn't happen. Um, we had fewer sergeants then, and guys tended to stay in those positions. Um, to this day, I still think that's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, position in, in the agency is that sergeant's position because you have enough authority to kind of do things your way in your supervisory district. You can mold your officers and, and really empower your officers and get them excited about your program. You know, the department, without a doubt, has the sideboards that we, we've set forward, but those sergeants um, are the buy-off. If your sergeants aren't bought off on the program, their officers aren't going to be bought off on the program, and then you get nowhere. Um, so that sergeant position is fantastic because you're out in the field still. Um, you get a little bump in pay, but you get to do things kind of your way. And um, the importance of being out there in the field, 
game warden or any law enforcement, I think, across the nation, they'll you ask any officer, they'll tell you what what's the greatest thing about being uh, a police officer, a game warden, a firefighter. Um, they're gonna all tell you it's the camaraderie. It's it's being there and being able to trust those individuals that are with you. Um, and like anything, till you've been in a situation that was pretty sketchy, I mean, le legitimately scary. Mm -hmm. um, when you come out the other end of that, those officers that were with you, that helped you get through that, whether it was a, a pretty hairy situation where, where guns were drawn or a sketchy uh, arrest warrant where this individual is pretty dangerous, when you come out the other end of those, um, you have a whole new respect for those people that are around you. Um, so that was pretty significant. And then um, even with the amount of officers that come in and out of your house that, that, that stay the night and, and your spouses are, are cooking dinners for four and five guys, and, and those were some of the best times, you know, that um, to this day my wife still talks about that was some of the funnest times with is having just different officers at different days, sometimes two or three times a week. Um, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess... Well, we haven't finished your question. We haven't. So, as I became a sergeant, um, I, I, an FTO when they promoted to sergeant, and uh, did that for another eight years. Uh, I was there in Magdalena, but still over that same part of the world, southwest, the, the Gila. Um, I did that for eight years and, and got to mold those officers. And we had uh, a new director come in and he kind of changed, not kind of, he without a doubt changed the whole perspective of the agency and the reorganization of our law enforcement um, that was the most um, impactful on the agency, I think, um, where we, before then, we had area chiefs. Um, you kind of had the four areas that did it their way, according to that chief. And uh, when this new director came in, Jim Lane, he, he reorganized the department where it was straight line chain of command for, for law enforcement um, and created that colonel position. And reality is, if it had not been for him and his vision and what he wanted for the department, um, I probably would not have been in this position because um, I was a sergeant at the time. So technically, um, or literally, I jumped lieutenant, captain, major to colonel um, from a sergeant. And it was because of his vision of what he wanted um, conservation law enforcement to look like in New Mexico. And, and that's, that's how I got in this position and have been here for six years now. And so, uh, so that's an interesting kind of brings up an interest. Uh, another interesting topic is, uh, you know, you're in a pretty high position as as a colonel of field operations. You you have uh, some of that, a lot of that working in you know inner working knowledge of the department and how all that works. Um, when you look through the history of the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. And I've released some some historical articles, and I will continue to do that about about game and fish and things like that. But sometimes it kind of goes through these cycles where um, a lot of stuff is dictated out of Santa Fe, and then 
you see through through history where that power is pushed out to the area offices and 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 so kind of explain how how that's how that works and, and how the whole kind of system works you know uh, I know everybody kind of knows that we have a game commission mm-hmm. and but a lot of people don't know how that game commission is, is put in place they don't know the relationship of the director to the game commission and then each of the uh, the divisions within within the department how all that works together right. I, I don't know if you can shed a little bit of light on that it, it, it um, I know you know before I before I started looking into it, it, it didn't make any sense to right. me, so. Um, probably li- there's a lot of moving parts there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the way it, it works is really the, the governor appoints seven commissioners, game commissioners in New Mexico. Um, we have seven commissioners that are um, supposed to be from across New Mexico, across the whole entire state, and, and represent different segments um, of New Mexico. Um, with that, the commission is hires a director or cabinet secretary over the agency. Um, that director acts as their secretary. Um, so a lot of people think that, well, the director is the ultimate authority over the game department. And the reality is there's still two layers um, that individuals got to work with and and coexist with the commission who sets the the standard or the direction for that director and then you've also got the governor in the governor's office you know the that that has input yeah, into they, they the direction the sure whatever they want to do um, and with with field operations um, you know then there's uh, uh, a deputy director under that director and, and then the colonel position. Um, so, so really, what, on the law enforcement aspect of it, you know, the, the law is what the law is. We, we can't deviate from that. Um, no one um, can say, don't do this or don't do that, as far as um, what the law says and, and what the Constitution says. Um, but they, they give us direction on kind of what they'd like us to focus on. And, and as the colonel, my job is to um, ensure that we have enough officers, enough the, the proper equipment, the proper training, and that we I kind of try and set the direction for how we're gonna move forward, um, whether it be focusing on community policing and, and really focusing on the egregious violations, those those violations that are truly hurting the resource and and disseminating that down as to all the way down to the field troop and 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 just really sideboards um, we know that uh, in any agency your younger officers are going to be your hard chargers they're they're going to write a lot of citations um, do great work but they make young mistakes um, it's not about that it's but it's about changing the culture or setting the culture of the agency that recognizing all the way down to those young officers that you know focus on those egregious violations if you find um, a, a 
kid or someone that it's an honest mistake. Maybe it's something as simple as fishing without a license. It's the whole goal on conservation law enforcement is voluntary compliance. What are we going to get the most voluntary compliance from? Because there are so few of us. We're not going to catch every violation. So getting setting the culture so that when that officer comes across a situation like a 17-year-old kid fishing without a license, is it a violation? Yes. But is issuing that individual a citation the best solution for that circumstance? Is something like giving them, um, educating them about the importance of the license and telling them, hey, go get a license and then you're good, or maybe even allowing them to finish the day, but say, you better get a license next time I see you. Does that change the trajectory of that individual's life where maybe they want to become a game warden or maybe they just become um, aware. Um, yeah, more aware and become a lawful sportsman from there forward because they were given a break. Um, so using common sense and the game commission again, they're there to adopt rules and regulations that we must enforce. Um, and sometimes they're spot on with what they do. Sometimes we don't completely agree. Um, and my job is to talk to them and give them the reality of it might just be words on paper to some individuals, but we're the division that's going to have to look someone in the eye and enforce that rule. Uh -huh. And the sillier those rules are, the harder it is for our officers in the field to do their job. So I guess as a, on, on a sidebar, you real quick, you were talking about you know fishing and 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 what you should do when you catch that person. Uh, personal experience here. Kyle knows me and my fishing history. He's shady. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I used to be. You used to I be. I used to yeah. be. But it's per well, perspective. We've talked about it. Perspective and yeah. education is everything. Sure. You know, um, I always, you know, I've used, I bought my fishing license and I'm catching this fish and I'm going to eat these fish. But what I never really thought of is how those fish got there right. and what it cost to get them there. And, you know, so now I'm not, I'm, it's not like I was going out and catching 100 fish and, taking them home or anything but you know the 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 rule was four and i'd get five or six and i mean then it wasn't until kyle explained to me what it cost per fish to right. put them in the water then you kind of stop and you think all right well and a lot of people haven't thought about that no you know they they, they don't think about that we have enough anglers in new mexico and who visit new mexico that that most of our fisheries can't and tell me if I'm wrong here, most of our fisheries can't function um, naturally. Right. We have to supplement, have to, that's why we have the hatcheries to give, you know, put fish in and, and that right. type of thing. Well, yeah, especially, you're, down. you're talking about like a lake like Grindstone. That, that place gets hammered, especially now with Bonita down, which is a good mm -hmm. question for you all, I'll ask in a minute. But, you know, right now, Grindstones and Alto Lake are the only uh, things around there in Riodoso other than the Rio Riodoso and I know they've done some good work on creating some some fisheries on the Rio Riodoso and working with some private landowners to get access to some places in there but um, uh, that place gets hammered so if you weren't putting fish in there well it's the same way with the Cimarron River yeah. up there uh, you know between Cimarron and Eagle Nest mm -hmm. that, that 
you know, Eagle Nest Lake feeds the Cimarron River in the wintertime, that pretty much gets shut off because they're not releasing any uh, irrigation water down that river. And there's a few holes where maybe some fish, if it's not a real bad winter, maybe some fish can winter over, but pretty much every fish that the department puts in that river uh, gets taken out. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. yeah. That's a good example of that. Yeah, and, and you gotta you gotta start thinking like that and be a little bit less selfish. And we talk about that on our podcast a lot, is not being selfish. And you know, here I was taking five or six fish when the limit is four, and that takes away from other people, and y'all can only put so many fish in there because of the cost. And unless you are able to wrap your mind around those types of things, um, well it also plays into uh, the fact and maybe you can speak to this a little bit more, uh, Colonel that the department does not take any general fund money. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, all of that is, is sportsman's dollars, um, whether it's license fee, even even our federal aid um, is is matching funds based on firearms, ammunition, and, and other equipment for Pitt, hunting. Pittman Robertson, exactly. Dingle Johnson. Yeah. Um, it, it's a pay-to-play system. That one. Um, it, and, uh, you know, with our fisheries... Um, you're absolutely right. It costs significant amounts of money to get those fish from from eggs or fry to a catchable size. Um, so on the fishery side, they 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 work it to where you, we want to stock catchable fish. You don't mm -hmm. want to put a bunch of little ones in there, and it would great to put a would be great to put a bunch of big ones in there. But it's playing that law of averages of what does it cost us to grow. A bunch of 16 inch trout versus a bunch of 12 inch trout mm -hmm. um, and that might be another year or two or three of feeding those fish to get them to that trophy size um, so playing okay if we put 12 inch fish um, they're, they're still catchable they're eatable um, and, and playing that and there's only so many fish that you can put into a system um, where they can continue to thrive for those few months, six months, um, yep. versus okay, we're going to put forty thousand fish in this lake. Um, and in addition to that, those those waters like the Cimarron River, where we know we're just putting them in to be caught, versus some of those larger fisheries that we're putting them in to sustain or sure. grow those, those populations. Population, yeah, big difference. Yeah, and there's a lot that goes into managing that. Um, coming back to to the you know, the department and the game commission and all those moving parts. Uh, I guess one question that that might be helpful to uh, to the public out there, because uh, there's, on social media, you, you always see, uh, you know, people asking questions, well, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Or uh, why was the department doing this? Um, there's several divisions within the department and each of those divisions kind of has their directive and, and mm -hmm. the way that and they each have a chief and, a, and the way that they're going to go so I guess um, how how what's your vision for field operations and how does that fit within the greater department mission and and and, and yeah I, I, I don't know how to say it other yeah. than that I guess <laughs> You know, for, for field ops or the, the department in general, you know, I think what's important is that we continue to um, manage our wildlife resources 
where we can continue to increase opportunity for our sportsmen. Um, those individuals are the ones paying our bills and they have an expectation that we're professional and, and continue to make New Mexico a keystone area for, for hunting, fishing, and trapping. Um, and, and that's just a segment of it. Um, we've got parts of the state that we need to continue to ensure that the elk in the Gila or Via Vidal remain premier. Um, we've got some of the best antelope hunting, bar none, in the world, yeah. um, or at least in North America where, we, where we've got antelope. Well, yeah, it's the only place. Um, it is the world because yeah. that's the only place we've got antelope. So. Um, but we've got some of the best antelope hunting in the world. You compare our antelope as far as size to Wyoming, it's not even comparable. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to ensure that we continue to manage those species and, and keep that quality up. Now we've got other aspects where there are opportunity. We just need to ensure that we continue to have wildlife, continue to have deer. It'd be great to have deer like we did in the late 60s and 70s, um, but with that is a lot of things out of our control, mm -hmm. like rain. Um, I think there's different arguments too as to what the landscape looked like in the in the 50s, 60s, and 70s compared to now. I think some of it has to do with the the type of livestock we have out there. I think sheep, for some reason, they they graze differently. Um, we had significant amount of predator control, and we're coming off of pretty good moisture that our deer population was up in those days. And will we ever get back to that? I don't know. Um, but that's an aspect of it. Um, the other, we've got other divisions that we're focusing on endangered species and non-game. Um, and right now, politically, that, that's a hot button in that um, a lot of our citizens are saying, hey, we need to be um, putting more effort into this non-game and non-traditional where the, the non-hook and bullet individuals, because um, our wildlife belongs to all of our citizens and it's not just our game animals. And I think the agency has done pretty well with that. We're just not um, as vocal about it. And I think, again, that gets back on the game department where we need to start um, educating the public on what the entire agency does because we are focusing on those endangered species. Um, you know, uh, one that got credit and, and got some, some news out there was our Desert Bighorn Sheep. Mm -hmm. What we did to that program as an agency and brought it back from being at those low numbers to we're hunting them again. We've got a good population, um, but that's something we hunt. We're doing that with some of the non-game also, or a lot of the non-game. We're just not vocal about it, and we need to get better um, at, at expressing the accomplishments of, of those divisions also. Well, I think the other thing that, that would probably be beneficial to the department is to get better about um, the a lot of the education like you were talking about in helping people to understand that the people paying for and buying hunting trapping and fishing licenses are the ones that are paying for that um, you know and everybody is benefiting mm -hmm. uh, you know it's if you if you want to see those endangered species come off the list if you want you should be getting into hunting right. trapping and fishing because that's what pays for it sure yeah 
sure. Yeah, and that, that's a system that a lot of people, and we've talked about this a lot on here too, is that's a system that most people are, are vastly unaware of. All hunting and fishing dollars come from the, the sale of licenses, tags, applications, and stuff like that, and is matched by Pittman-Robertson. And Pittman-Robertson is, is you know, excise taxes for firearms, bullets, um, and then boats, fishing equipment, stuff like that. Um, but all of that money comes from us, comes from those people that are exercising that right. And the non-hunters out there, if you want to help, buy a hunting license. You don't have to go hunting, yeah. you know, but buy a hunting license. Right. You know, and, and wildlife management in general, it, it's not rocket science. Um, but what makes it difficult is you put in the human aspect to it. Um, You know, it's not about just continuing to grow animals um, because, yeah, there's a carrying capacity of what the habitat can support, but reality is there's a social carrying capacity is what we deal with mostly. Um, You know, could we grow more elk? Absolutely. But socially, there's a segment that says we want to see more elk there's another segment that says, okay, we have too many elk because mm-hmm. of damage to fence, damage to crops, whatever the case may be. So it's weighing all Highway of that. Highway accidents, all yeah. kinds of stuff. It, it, there's, there's all of that that goes into it. Um, and that's what makes it difficult. It's the human aspect. Um, everyone likes to see deer in their yard until they start eating all the trees and flowers. <laughs> How much, so you're talking about the different departments and, and, you know, the commission and the law enforcement agency portion of it. How much influence does um, the law enforcement officers have on the rules and regs and how things are set up? You know, that's one thing where I personally am, am trying to be better about including our officers from the ground up. Um a significant portion across the nation um, for wildlife agencies is 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 recruiting people into um, the sport of hunting, fishing, and trapping, or just outdoor um, stuff. So our officers are the most significant portion of 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 getting people into the program um, because they are the face of the agency. Um, and because they're the face of the agency and they're the boots on the ground, they're the ones enforcing these laws, um, I try to include all of our officers when we're developing rules. Um, now, do they have as much say when the commission decides to do something? Not, not so much. Um, but a lot of the rules that we present um, are with input of our officers from day one. Um, so, so yeah, they do have a significant input. Um, they just don't have the final say, which, yeah. you know, what comes out the other end might be 180 degrees from what that game warden in reserve wanted, uh, but they did have input in the process. So that's also something for people to understand, though, is that uh, um, what one single officer, one single person in one part of the state wants may not weigh out against those social issues, against the uh, greater uh, wildlife management direction that's, you know, being taken by uh, 
the wildlife management division, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All that weighs in. I think that's one of the biggest things that many people probably don't understand is just the complexities of the agency and everything that has to happen in, in order for these rules to be made and passed and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, again, elk, for example, what a rule that would work great in the Gila may not work exactly. so well in Clayton. And we can't have rules. We can't have 22 different rules for elk in the state. We typically try and have a rule that applies the best coverage across the whole state. Yeah. Um, so those individual interests, sometimes it, it seems like we're going against them, but it's not. It's what works best for the entire state and all the individuals and all the different pieces. Um, that, that's what makes it difficult. Yeah. We got some, uh, some questions that uh, we had some of our listeners send in. Um, I'll start with one. Uh, David King asked, and this kind of <clears throat> ties into what you're saying. He was asking, what was the thinking behind making Unit 34 elk hunts all either sex hunts this year? Typically, they're either mature bull or antlerless, but this year in Unit 34, they're all either sex. Right. You know, a lot of that with 34 is that's one of those elk populations that um, we've got a segment that's saying, hey, we want to see the qualities getting better. Let's continue to make it better. Let's reduce the amount of tags. Let's let's protect those big bulls. But we've got another segment that's saying, okay, we got way too many elk here. Um, through all our surveys, it's got one of the highest um, cow-to-calf ratios and bull-to-cow ratios in the state. Um, so it's one of those that we're trying to reduce that herd while still maintaining as much of the quality as we can. And, and that's where that came from, is allowing an individual, rather than having to just shoot a mature bull, they have the opportunity to kill any elk. And, you know, a lot of our sportsmen that put in for those, those hunts, if they're, they're out there for a mature bull, they're probably going to go home empty-handed if they don't get an opportunity at a mature bull. But it gives them the option of, on that last day or two, if they want to just take home some meat, rather than shoot that little three-by-three that happened to come in, they can take a cow and still protect some of that that mature bull age class, um, but get some meat. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Really good question. Uh, another question we had come in that, that I guess kind of ties into some of this <clears throat> is, and it's a question that we wanted to kind of talk with you a little bit about, um, is some of the new laws uh, that that are going to take effect this hunting season. I know there's been a change to some of the manner and method. Mm-hmm. Um, one specific question that came in was, what was the reason for changing the caliber for big game? I know when uh, Rodney first saw it, who, who asked that? Uh, that was Lamar. Lamar. Shaw. Lamar Shaw asked that. But when when Rodney first saw that, I know he he was like 22. You know, right. so so that that was the question that Lamar wanted right. wanted to to see if he could answer is what what are the reasonings for, I guess let's let's talk about that one first and then a little bit about the some of the rule changes right. in general. You know, manner and method, and that one in particular, 
um, that specific rule. What, what we looked at when we were revamping manner and method, and, and this was some of my direction in that what we're trying to do is simplify the rules that are out there for our sportsmen. Um, trying to not overregulate our sportsmen, and which is awesome, right? And I think um, hopefully this will get out there and, and people will understand that because that's uh, something that we absolutely agree with. Is let's make it easier for people to hunt. Yeah, you know, and the way it was is we had certain species like elk and oryx, for example that it had to be a 24 caliber or larger, um, and the others were a 22 caliber or larger, and it's center fire, not rim fire. Um, and yeah, the vast majority of our elk hunters, I would say are out there with 30 caliber or larger. Mm -hmm. um, you'd run into occasional, uh, a 243 out there, which is fine if you get a well-placed shot and you, you know you're, um, your capabilities, you can kill elk with a two forty three. I've seen it done multiple times. Yeah, there's a there's a whole a whole bag of snakes there getting into calibers and sure. right. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, but yeah. we also had Barbary sheep that for years it's always been it was one of those species that was a twenty two caliber or larger. Well, anyone who's been around Barbary sheep knows that Barbary sheep are one of the hardest animals to get knocked down on the ground. Yeah. Um, but we were not running into individuals hunting with a two forty three or a twenty two two fifty. They were out there with thirty caliber um, type yeah. weapons. Yeah. And we just were not running into individuals hunting with those small. So again, to simplify and not overregulate, what we're saying is that you can use any center fire um, that you feel comfortable with, knowing that our sportsmen, they know what they need to be using. Yeah. We're just, we're not running into those violations. Um, and we think it's one of those that our sportsmen are gonna self-regulate. They know what, they, mm -hmm. what, what the weapon type that they need to be, or the caliber that they need to be effective and make a humane shot. Yeah, and that, that speaks to, you know, we just did a podcast on ethics, laws, and morals, mm -hmm. and, and all the gray areas in between. Yeah. And that speaks to, uh, you know, what we were talking about before is that most, the large, very vast majority of, of the sportsmen out there um, are true conservationists, are doing it for the right reason, are, and are going to do the right thing. Right. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's no different than taking a 100-yard shot with a bow. Yeah. Right? You're not going to take that shot if, or you shouldn't take that shot if you're not sure that you can make that shot. Right. If you have a question about whether or not you can make the shot, you shouldn't take the shot. So it's the same thing with the 22 caliber. If you don't think that you can take that animal with that, don't do it. Okay. You know, um, who's the government to tell us what we can right. and can't do? Because you if know, we can, if, if there's a kid out there that they want to go elk hunting, but they're recoil shy or whatever the case may be, but they feel really comfortable with that 22250. And that gets that kid out there on that cow hunt and they keep it within 100 yards. Mm -hmm. You can get it done again, but we're still not seeing that. We're still seeing most of those kids um, with, with muzzle brakes and stuff that's out there now. You know, my boys. 
they shoot a 270 short mag yeah. and have been since they were probably 12 years old. I got a muzzle brake on it. It has almost no recoil. Yeah. Um, and that's what they use. Yeah. But it was, again, we're, we're trying to simplify and not over-regulate our sportsmen. And if we get used to, in our own state, we look at our, our big game rules proclamation or rule information booklet. We know it by heart. We know all the rules. But try getting someone else's proclamation from another state oh, yeah. and look at all the rules. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's so confusing. <laughs> so that's what we're trying to do is... is any of those laws that were out there that we just were not running into those violations, just trying to do away with them to simplify the whole system. Well, that's kind of, I think that's kind of what happened uh, with the proclamation this year, right? Correct. Did you have any 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 say in, in how that was, how the new proclamation was kind of set up? Because it's vastly different from the way it was sure. in the past. Yeah, but I love it. Yeah, what, what we did is it was... Uh, you know, primarily uh, your brother, Captain Ty Jackson, that did the bulk work of that. But, yeah, I was hand-in-hand hand with him with a lot of his ideas. And, again, that, that whole process was to simplify it and make it easier for our hunter when they're looking at that, that every all the information they need is right there at hand. And it's so funny because before we started this podcast, we were kind of talking about the question about calibers. And, and you said something that, you know, we're, we're – tr- you're trying to uh, make it easier for people to do stuff and then you have certain people who say no we want a regulation type of thing right. it's that I think it's almost that visceral human reaction of it's new so I don't like it because the first time you know uh, I think uh, some, I can't remember who it was but I, I was with somebody when they first those proclamations first came out mm-hmm. and they looked at it and they go why they change it? It was just fine, and you get to looking you at it you're like it. it is so, so much, much easier, easier yes. than the yeah. old way. I, I love it. I mean, it it really makes it nice because you just go to the unit and everything's right there. You don't have to flip to three different sections to look at the same unit. Yeah, and and yeah, there's a lot of people that hunt by weapon choice, but there's probably more people that hunt by unit. Yeah. And they want to look at that unit and have their options mm-hmm. right there. In front well, of if you I remember the really old like way, if if you had, you if you were looking at different options and different GMUs, you had to go, okay, what's the dates over here, and then what's the dates over here, and then you had to go to a different section if you wanted to change weapon types. Mm-hmm. And, oh man, it was yeah. Yeah, yeah it was it was just even simpler is when we took the the proclamation from the size it was and made it the smaller. And that was whole, the whole reason behind that was, again, so guys could carry them a little easier, um, didn't have this big book compared to the smaller book. Fits in your backpack yeah. really nice. We had a lot of complaints that, well, now I can't read it. It's too small. Well, the print size did not change. <laughs> it, was, it was no different, but just... Just the size. Yeah, just, just that it, change It, it was factor. different, yeah, and, and we had factor. people complain about it, and you know now people have gotten used to it, and... But again, we're we're just trying to make it easier for our hunters. What what the last thing we want is violations that our officers are coming across that are because of confusion. Because that's our fault. If we've got confusing laws or you've got so many laws out there that you're either A pushing people away because they look at it and go, you know what? I'm not sure I can do this and stay legal just because by mistake. Or you have laws that are so confusing that they just don't know. And that's what we're trying to avoid. 
All right, so I guess kind of staying in the same realm of, of new laws and, and things like that, uh, there's a legislative session uh, going that um, will end here pretty shortly. Uh, but we had a, a listener pose the question about uh, some of the proposed laws that are going through and if they're passed, how they're going to affect uh, Game of Fish and how your officers do business, particularly the, he mentioned the House Bill 8, Senate Bill 8, which is the quote-unquote universal background checks, mm -hmm. um, and then also some of those other Second Amendment laws. Sure. And of course, you know, after that we can probably touch on some of the stuff that will obviously affect Game of Fish. Mm -hmm. Um, really, the, the the bill that the governor signed into law yesterday will have really no effect on, on our business. Um, you know, requiring individuals to do a background check on licensed sales. Um, you know, no matter where an individual stands on that, as far as, as our business and going on with hunting, um, it'll have no effect. We, we don't make a habit of when we check our, our hunters in the field and, and um, for some reason have their firearm in our hands. We're, we're not writing down serial numbers off of, off of our sportsmen's firearms and, and checking them in any way. You know, if, if we have a significant case where, where we're seizing firearms, um, we will um, check those for stolen. Um, but on a day-in, day-out basis of, of handling firearms, we're not writing down that information and nor checking if, if they're registered or not. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as, as our business goes, it'll, it'll have almost no impact. Okay. Um, I guess, so there's several bills going through that, that have, well, at least that we've been following that seem to have some momentum. Um, I know one that you're probably very uh, co uh, cognizant about and, and uh, keeping an eye on is the anti-traffic bill. Sure. Um, what's that looking like, and, and what is what really what is that going to look like if passed? What's that going to look like for the department? And how the department does business? You know that that bill, um, if passed, we would be the first state in the nation to do an all-out ban of trapping on public land, um, which obviously we are opposed to. We, we recognize um, trapping as a significant uh, a wildlife management tool. Um, well, it's not just us. I mean, there's several uh, premier wildlife professional agencies, AFWA, things like that who um, have put out that information that that's a, a very viable sure. and needed management tool, correct? She, without a doubt, you know, um, WAFWA, um, which, which is uh, um, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies have come out in support of, of regulated trapping. Um, the Wildlife Society, which is the premier um, wildlife biologist, wildlife management um, uh, organization has come out in support of regulated trapping. Uh, the top veterinary organization you know, in the nation has come out in support of uh, 
regulated trapping. Um, again, that's another one of those with a lot of misinformation being thrown around. Um, I think, um, and maybe it's playing into their their side of a lot of people don't understand trapping, and when they think of traps, they they think of uh, the big two jaw trap that you see on Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> where you know with BMP's best management practices and the millions of dollars that have put into research on ensuring that today's technology today's traps are effective humane um, that they're reducing as much injury as possible or no injury um, and and that that's significant and you know that all the photographs that go around the internet and, and the talk of these bone crushing mechanisms, the reality is traps are designed to simply hold the animal by the foot mm-hmm. until the trapper gets there. Um, and there are those animals are not um, being trapped and left there to die and then somehow comes along the trapper and, and, and waiting for those animals to die before he harvests them. They're, they're being checked every day. Um, a lot of those animals are not in a trap for more than four to six hours. Um, and yeah, there are extreme cases where, which are being highlighted, um, but those are, that's illegal to do. Well, that's just yeah. like you talked about it. You know, most of the people out there are doing it correct. What gets highlighted is the bad, bad apples. apples. Yeah. yeah, you know, and that's not doing, you know, it doesn't do anybody good. But again, it's it's that's what people focus on. Sure. Yeah. And and our trappers are for the most part very law abiding. Um, some of our most staunch sportsmen are our trappers, and you know when you go through violation rates, um, our our average violation rate for our anglers is in that eight to ten percent range. Our average violation rate for our, our hunters in general is about three to five percent. Our average violation rate on our trappers is about one percent. Um, so, but they do get highlighted when those violations yeah. occur, and, and we do our best to to prosecute those individuals because they are harming. Um, they're putting bad uh, bad information, a bad light on our our legal trappers, and it is highly regulated. Um, so again, a lot of misinformation being put out there. If if traps were designed to break bones and 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 crush limbs and 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 chop legs off, well, that would not be effective. We need that 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 animal to be there um, unharmed when when the trapper gets yeah. there to harvest that individual. Um, yeah, we so. we got some cool video. We did a tra- trapping podcast not too long ago, and we got some cool video that we've yet to put out. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna but, say, if you're a first time listener, I would, I would refer you back to the trapping podcast that we've yeah. done with my brother Ty, and, yeah. and the just a sheer amount of uh, good information that he provided us with. And we will put out those videos where yeah. he actually put. Yeah, he he. In, we got a video his, of him his putting his hand he, in the trap your, and it going off. Your on boys his are the same. Your boys sure. have been trapping since they're how young? Oh yeah, since they were probably five years old, and and both of them have caught in a finger a time or two, <laughs> um, and uh, you know they they still have all their fingers. None of them were broken, um, but it it is truly you know 
it, it, it's pretty neat to when you're a trapper and you go out there and you look at this vast landscape and, and you're looking at and you're wanting to take all of those acres and you're needing an animal, you need to place a trap in a spot where that two inch circle or three inch circle, yeah. that's where you need that animal to step. Um, and and you, you get pretty in tune with, with nature and your surroundings to, to do that. Yeah. Um, again, you know, this, this bill is, it's, it's titled, you know, public safety. Um, the reality is, again, it's that two inch circle. If, if a human steps on it, even a child, um, their foot is going to span that trap, or it's going to be on a jaw. It's not going to. It's not going to clamp down on on a foot. It's things you're not going to break out a bone. No, or anything like no, that. absolutely not. And again, it's highly regulated. We only allow traps of certain size to be there on the landscape. And are there examples of extreme violations? Yes, but that's our job to ensure that we're out there catching those individuals and holding them accountable. Um, and, and with that being said, yeah, we do need to make some adjustments in certain areas. Um, and I think we're going to go forward and do that for sure if, if we can survive this legislative session and get the opportunity to do so. Yeah. Um, and I think one of those things is being suggested and, and is being uh, uh, tossed around, if I'm not mistaken, is, is kind of like the cougar. Uh, just a trapper identification type or, or an education type mm -hmm. of course and I think that that would be very beneficial because I know uh, it's almost like shit hunting when the prices go up you get people who have never done it are looking and Ty put it very very plainly if you're looking to make a quick buck off a trap and it's not going to happen right. you're going to spend more doing it but that's kind of what happens when those furs go up uh, guys who don't normally trap kind of throw some traps out there and, and see what they can catch and, 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 and get some money. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, like you said, it's highly regulated. It's uh, really uh, almost a non-issue. Sure, yeah. And, you know, and your best trappers that are working on their equipment, they've got the best equipment, they're setting their pan tension right, they're trapping in locations, they don't want to catch non-target species. Um, they dang sure don't want to catch people's pets, um, but do we have some individuals that trap too close to town? Yes, and, and we, we try to address that and we try to educate. So I think trapper education is going to be a fantastic tool. Um, a lot of our violations that seem egregious like that where we're catching pets and, and, and other things, it's often new trappers that are doing just that. Um, they're, they're hearing about the price of, of pelts and thinking it's a quick buck and the reality is if you don't know what you're doing the odds of you making any money are, are slim to none um, but yeah we'll continue watching that one for sure so here's a here's a good question for you just off the top of my mind <clears throat> we do a lot in educating uh, the sportsmen we do a lot we talk a lot about you know, you know trapper education uh, then the cougar identification type of stuff does the department have any vested interest, or, or is there is there any programs uh, on the other side of things to just educate general public about these are accepted and regulated and uh, viable practices for managing wildlife? Mm -hmm. And also, is there things that sportsmen can do to help with that? Right. Well. Are you talking trapping specific? No, just, just in, in general, general, hunting, trapping, oh. etc. 
Yes, I think uh, the department is is uh, very much interested in promoting more education to the public, the general public, not just our sportsmen. And, and that's one thing in field operations that we're currently working on is getting our officers out there amongst their public, um, which oftentimes is going to be our sportsmen that, that want to put forth the effort to go talk to the game warden. But just to go discuss with their public on what would they like to see the game department do? What are we doing good at? You know, what, what do they appreciate? What would they like to see us do better at? And, and really get it from the ground up um, where our officers can come to us um, at headquarters and say, here's what my segment, my community would like to see. And again, it does not mean that that's going to occur because we got to do it at the landscape scale of the whole state. Um, but trying to get the voice of the masses in there into our, into our management and not just being heard at a game commission meeting. Um, do we have any other questions that we had from just I don't I don't think so I think that's uh, the you, you got the last one there right yes I have the last one I guess before we ask that question um, Colonel is there anything that that you would like to kind of put out there for our listeners on um, I, I guess understanding about how the department works, what the position of the officers and field ops is within that, and and the relationship uh, between the public and those officers mm -hmm. going forward. Well, you know, ultimately our officers are out there to enforce the laws and rules to protect the resource, but a significant portion is education and and. Uh, and community policing, building relationships with our community. And, and the biggest thing I want um, out there is that our sportsmen and our officers and our general public, we're all on the same side of wanting to protect the resource and love of the resource. Um, as, as politics get into the mix, it's ever more important that we recognize that we're on the same side and, and come together and to try and continue to keep this heritage of our hunting, fishing, and trapping alive in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, because there is a segment out there that even though it might be just right now focusing on trapping, there's a segment out there that wants to do away with the use of our wildlife entirely. Mm -hmm. They do not want any hunting, fishing, or trapping. None. Um, and we saw that with, or we're seeing that with this trapping bill, that we would be the first state to ban all trapping on public land, um, to include cage traps that are a danger to nothing. Um, it, we need to recognize that. And right behind trapping, I assure you, if they were to accomplish that, the next thing is going to be hound hunting. Um, or lion hunting or bear hunting yeah. in general. Mm. It's, it's, it, it, it's a progressive thing that we've seen across the nation. Death by a thousand cuts. Yes. And it, it is a fear <clears throat> among you know many hunters, if, if not a conspiracy theory, an actual fear that, that that's what this trapping bill is. is. It's just a step in the direction of getting rid of hunting because if, 
you use predators to control uh, big game populations, why do we need to hunt? Right. And unfortunately, that's been one of the hunter's arguments for hunting for years is that we need to manage populations. Well, if they take that argument away, then we don't need long. We don't need yeah. hunters well, I mean, because we have better population. And, and it's not. A, and it's not an unfounded fear because that's, no, that's not. what they are trying to do. They're it's trying not. to take that step. Um, again, that comes back to the education, and and we as sportsmen, along with the game and fish, along with your local officer, need to be willing to step up. And and if you, you know, obviously. There's people out there you're not going to be able to reason with, but there are people. There's the vast majority of people out there, like your neighbors who may not hunt but don't have anything against hunting. One, you know, they they're hearing this misinformation. Correct. Really, all it takes to correct that is to for you to step and say that's not exactly true. Sure. Uh, you know, there's a lot more to wildlife management. Uh, you know, than just allowing predators to control the prey populations. If you know anything about wildlife management, that's a very violent process. Yes. The, you know, the boom and bust sure. uh, cycles of nature. It, you know, but it's important as our, we do need our sportsmen to get out there and educate as many people as possible, but they need to do it properly and take the emotion out of it. Correct. Um, everyone's got their point of view uh-huh. and take the emotion out of it. Don't get in arguments. Um, explain the facts. Learn the facts and, exactly. and, and, and explain it. And some you will change, others you won't. Um, but as sportsmen in general, what we need to all be cognizant of is that there is a segment out there that um, there's a significant segment out there that they're not against hunting, fishing, or trapping. They just don't do it. There mm-hmm. is the far extreme that they're absolutely against it. We probably will not affect those individuals, yeah. but the no majority. Use, no use arguing. No, yeah. it's like wrestling a pig. Yeah, we but the majority just, out yeah. there, they're they might just be indifferent to it. They 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 don't participate, but they may not even think about it. Mm-hmm. But as sportsmen, what we can do is always show respect for our harvest, and whether it's elk hunting or deer hunting, if you're hunting in the southern end of the state and you kill a large animal that the rack sticks up above the bed of the pickup, congratulations. People are going to see it. But we don't need to put it in people's faces. Yes. If you've got uh, your harvest and for some reason, you know, and you see it all the time, that they lop the head off of something and they put it on the four-wheeler and it's looking out the back and they drive from Lordsburg to Santa Fe on the interstate, mm-hmm. how many people are seeing that? Or that cow elk with her head draped over the side. Yes. How many people are you turning off? How many of that middle segment that were not against it, but now they're looking at that for 70 miles? And well, it, maybe now they are against yeah, it. Yeah, it pushes them to the other yeah. side. How we conduct ourselves has a great effect on those people that are in the middle ground. Yes. And we don't want to be pushing them to the other side because then they're going to become one more person that's against hunting. Without a doubt. So we've got to, and we've talked about that a lot, Kyle. Uh, yeah. Well, we've, we've, we've had, talked about all of this yeah. a lot. You know, the education, educate yourself. Don't be yeah. ignorant and just, you know, spew off old wives' tales or do anything like yeah. that. Learn the facts. Be, you know, articulate whenever, you know, be able to explain those facts. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, you know, don't 
I guess showboat is, is kind yeah. of a word we can yeah. use, but you you still you know be be a proud hunter. We don't yeah. mind you being that. Without yeah. a doubt, do not be ashamed of being a hunter, no. but show respect for Absolutely. your harvest. Show respect for the other side of those individuals that are on the fence. Mm-hmm. But educate yourself when you're getting when you get the opportunity to educate somebody. Do so. Yes, Jump on that opportunity. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. Very. All, all those. All those are very important points. Um, it's our way of life, and we have to protect it. Without a doubt. Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess uh, we can kind of wrap this up with uh, with a couple of things. Um, I know you're a big hunter. Uh, do you have any good hunting stories that that uh, that kind of stick out to you? over the years and then we'll finish up with uh courtesy for sending a, a question about your uh, any work situations we'll, we'll start with the, the hunting stories because everybody likes hunting stories and sure. i'm sure you've got a few you know i yeah i've got a lot of hunting stories um you know i've, I've had the opportunity to kill some pretty good species at times um i'm primarily an archery hunter yeah um and actually, I think I'm going to narrow you down because, um, and this will kind of maybe flow into. Uh, would you be able to tell that story about you and Ty hunting uh, the archery hunt down in the southeast part of the state where you caught the guy shooting the <laughs> rifle? <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know as a game warden, um, you you really look forward like any any hunter. But especially as game warden, you look forward to those opportunities where you draw a tag and get to leave, kind of work behind and 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 go hunting. Go be a normal guy. Yeah, go be a normal guy. And uh, uh, we drew a tag down in uh, the Sacramento, or not the Sacramento's, uh, down in the Guadalupe's, and we were hunting deer. And uh, both of us have harvested uh, multiple deer over the years, and so we've gotten kind of particular to what we decide to actually put a stock on. And uh, this particular deer hunt was pretty tough. We just weren't finding um, many uh, trophy-sized mule deer. And a few days into it, we finally found a pretty good buck um, that was worth uh, putting a good stock on. And uh, we're pretty excited after several days of hunting that we found this buck. And, And we're up there on a hill glassing him. Um, and when I say up on a hill, we're with a pickup. Yeah. Um, skyline, the whole nine yards, looking at this buck and had just gotten done having the conversation of finally found one worthy of putting a stock on. He was pretty far out there. And uh, as we're looking at him through the glass, um, the first rifle shot rings out. And uh, again, this is an archery hunt. And uh, we kind of both pick our head up and go, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and then the second rifle shot rings out and we can tell that buck is hit and he kind of spins and runs off and then third, fourth rifle shot. And so we start looking around and pretty soon we see a pickup, oh, half a mile away uh, up on a hill and uh, just couldn't believe ourselves that we're, we're relaxed, we're away from the job, and here's a violation occurring right in front of us on a buck that's taken us four or five days to find. <laughs> and um, 
we actually had another kid with us that his dad, he is now a game warden with us, but his dad was a retired sergeant with us. And uh, he's jumping out of his skin, can't believe it. And so your brother and I were pretty upset at this point. And we, uh, we tell that kid, well, get on the phone, see if you can get an officer over here. And he's like, well, what are y'all going to do? He's like, well, we're going to catch this son of a gun. Um, <laughs> and uh, all of us, we, both of us had our, our, our badges with us. And we built the game plan. It's like, well, let's go sack this guy up. And, and um, we drive over there and, and uh, obviously not in uniform. And uh, we, we meet this guy on the hillside and uh, badge him, show him the badges. And so he was pretty shocked, to, to say the least, that out in the middle of nowhere, he decided to poach this mule deer in front of two game wardens. It's almost like him stepping on that little two-inch yeah, yeah, right. yeah, he stepped on the pan. <laughs> well, I got caught. <laughs> and uh, so we kind of sack him up and, and uh, get a hold of the local officer there and uh, have him sitting there on the ground. We already have his firearm, everything set aside, and just pretty much gift wrap this case for this officer. But I did tell that guy, I was like, man, of all the people in the state where you decided to do this, um, you did it in front of two office slug game wardens because both of us were there in Santa Fe at the time and, and were caught by office guys yeah. and not even caught field by the guys uh, running the desk yeah the field guys. <laughs> not even by field guys anymore but uh, so it, it was comical after the fact but pretty dang frustrating um, to put that much effort into that hunt and, and finally find the buck we were willing to go after. And he did recover the buck. It we we ended nice up buck. recovering the buck. He had uh, hit him bad. He hit him twice, but that buck, uh, um, he would have died, but we were able to track him down and and finish him off. And uh, one of, that kid that was with us uh, ended up putting him down with a bow and uh and taking oh, that's good. so I didn't know that but it, it it was pretty comical to say the least um your brother and i have been hunting partners for a lot of years and have had some great hunts um so it uh as i've gotten older and my boys are hunting that's what i enjoy more than anything now is is watching them harvest um you know i do hunt with a rifle some but primarily with a bow and it's about just those opportunities to be out there and if I get to knock an arrow, it's a success. Whether I, I draw back and, and get to um, fire a shot or not, it's, it's just being out there. So. Yeah, that brings to mind kind of another um, interesting thought that I think most people probably don't realize is just how involved uh, being a game warden is. It's it, it, You almost can't turn it off. No, no, you can't. Um, you know, just like any other law enforcement, we take an oath. Um, to enforce the the laws and, and the constitution and 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 you're out there you you, you can't you can't turn it off um, as much as you try um, when I was stationed there in the Gila um, you know the premier elk hunting in the world um, I actually drew a couple tags there but it was not as relaxing to hunt where I was working because I couldn't turn it off um, so I quit putting in in the Gila just so I could go somewhere else and hunt and not have to worry about yeah. my local issues. Seeing that guy and knowing 
yes. probably what he's up to yes. and not be able to relax. Um, and and, and them, no, them knowing me and, and my personal vehicle and worrying about, you know, if someone had let the air out of my tires or bust a window or or you're hearing a rifle shot during archery season and, and wanting to go home and get in uniform and go handle that, it just it took the fun out of or the relaxation out of the hunt yeah so uh, um but yeah we we still i still love hunting as much as any so yeah that's good we'll end up with uh curtis's question he asked what's the strangest work-related situation you found yourself in <laughs> you know i i don't know um being a game warden in the field especially you run across so many stories and and early on, I had an uncle, you know, I'd always tell stories, some of the cases or situations you get in. He's like, man, you need to write those down. Those are hilarious. And and I didn't, so I've forgotten a lot of them. But uh, it, it's funny how people, the things that they decide to do really in, in public, um, but they think they're secluded, you know. Um, I think every game warden's run across someone out there doing some deviant act with each other um, where they think is out in the middle of nowhere and it isn't um, you know the the you better stop that stuff yeah. game cameras are <laughs> yeah. prevalent yeah. nowadays um, you know the the plane crashes the car crashes the 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 suicides the bad side of of law enforcement that you see um, I've uh, had to draw my weapon a few times that got pretty sketchy but an interesting fact on that I've had uh, two different guns pulled on me and they're both by females that was kind of out of the ordinary <laughs> right so, um, when you stop and think about it it's it's not really that surprising right right, <laughs> right. Um, but just a lot of good experiences a lot of funny stuff um, a lot of the funnier stories were actually scary at the time and but you know yeah. again you went home safe and you found the comedy in it, uh, but uh, just a, a lot of fun, and you meet a lot of good people. Um, it's you're the only game warden in the area, so everyone remembers your face. Um, you don't always remember theirs because you see so many people. But uh, one instance in particular, I got to go on a department trip to uh, Portland, Oregon, to go to Rocky Mountain Health Foundation to run our booth. And uh, me and a biologist are sitting there and these two guys walk up and instantly I can tell they're giving me the cold shoulder, um, just focusing on the biologist and not even saying hello to me. And after I've tried to engage with them, um, obviously turning their back to me and wanting to focus on this other guy. And I finally, I was like, do I know you guys? And they're like, yeah, you don't remember us? I was like, I. I promise you I don't. I mean, I'm not from Oregon. And they said, you wrote us a citation. And I had written them a citation a few years earlier in New Mexico, run into them in Portland, Oregon. Um, I don't even remember what the citation was, but they, they dang sure remembered me. Yeah, that's um, pretty personal for them. Yeah, yeah. But um, greatest job in the world. Uh, wouldn't change it for anything. Um, I've got... Uh, you know, one of my oldest son is actually talking about potentially wanting to be a game warden. Um, my younger, he he wants to be an engineer, so he, maybe he can support our hunting habit. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, very good. Uh, 
Colonel Rood, really appreciate you joining us. I think uh, I think you give some very valuable insights into uh, the goings on in the game of fish and and kind of. Uh, you do a very good, every time I've, I've spoken to you, uh, you do a very good job of articulating how important the game warden's job is, and, and um, I think you've done a fantastic job of, of presenting that professional face to the, to the, uh, to the public from the department, um, and uh, I sure appreciate that. So. Yeah, and thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no, I appreciate you guys. It's, it's good that we have shows like this that are promoting... Um, our heritage so that that's yep. that's essential very good all right guys well, join us next time adios adios thanks for joining not a grande outdoors podcast come follow us on instagram twitter facebook and youtube and don't forget about our website www.notagrandeoutdoors.com adios, adios.